From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast. As always, this show is brought to you by EPR Creations. EPR Creations partners with small businesses for website development and online strategy planning. There's no time like the present to make sure that you have the best online presence possible. When everybody's social distancing and checking everything online, you need to have the best marketing presence you can so that when people search, they find you and they want to go with you. Whatever you're selling, whatever you're doing, Get your internet presence going. Call EPR Creations. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered Podcast. Information is in the show notes. Okay, so we've got a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. Uh, It continues to be a little difficult for me to get some of these episodes out, but uh, doing the best I can, and we'll continue to to try to improve the frequency on that. But uh, the first thing is the proverbial elephant in the room, and that is the mistake made by Mike Norvell in terms of uh, his interview with Tayshawn Reed from The Athletic. And Reed had at, Reed just simply asked him whether he'd discussed the death of George Floyd and, and the uh, protests that have swept the nation and really the world since then with his players, which is a perfectly fair question. It's a question that I think Reed would have been uh, mistaken, would have been misguided not to have asked that question. And Norvell just... You know, he said, oh, we've had a lot of open communication with our team, our players and our coaches. I went back and forth individually with every player this weekend. Well, the problem is that Marvin Wilson flagged that and said, that's just not true. He sent us all a text, generated text, but there was no there was no back and forth. We didn't individually talk with it. You know, he didn't individually talk with each one of us. And, you know, that's a that's a pretty big misspeak. That's a that's a major unforced error by uh, by Mike Norvell. That's something that if he'd said I reached out individually to each one of my players, there's no problem. But I think you can say he's guilty of embellishing a little bit or just being a little sloppy in in his verbiage and how he worded this. And again, he's he's in an interview. He's this is recruiting mode in, in, in large, uh, in large measure. And he's trying to make sure that the program looks as good as possible. He has sent something out individually to each player. Uh, a number of players did respond and, and have a back and forth with him. So he conflates a little bit of that and winds up with something where players who didn't have a back and forth with him are going, uh, no, we didn't. And there you go. Uh, it's it's pretty simple. And that this could have been a massive, massive misstep. And, and we're still not enti- it's still not entirely clear what the final outcome of all that's going to be. But ultimately, you have to give Norvell a lot of credit for how he handled this after the fact. When you have a player that goes to goes on social media and absolutely rips you and basically calls you a liar and says that's poopy emoji. Well, there are a lot of there are a lot of different ways that could have gone. And what I got to give Norvell credit for is taking the humble route here and meeting with his players and saying, you know what, guys, Marvin's right. I I didn't what I said wasn't accurate, and I'm sorry for that. I'll I'll own up to that, and I want to make sure that you guys have the opportunity to say what you what you what you think and what you feel on on this stuff. And then opening the door to listen to players to what they actually want to say, what they want to do, and saying, "Look, we want to get behind you. You, you guys, as black men, this is this is a critical time where your voices are. You have a platform where your voices can be heard, and it's important that your voices are heard. And we want to make sure that we amplify that. Well, that that takes something that that was a mistake. There's no doubt about it. It's it's something that." I'm pretty sure that Norvell has been kicking himself over from the, from the very time that that first tweet went out. But you, I don't think you can handle it much better than how, how they did and how he did. And to me, the the biggest thing is, and, and you look at the, at the release that Norvell put out. I mean, he could have, he could have taken an oppositional approach and said, you know, look, I'm, I'm the coach. You, you keep things in house period. And, you know, tried to, you know, non-apology apology thing this. And that's not what he did. 
You look at it, you look at the statement that was released and he said, I'm proud of Marvin for utilizing his platform to express his reactions to my reaction to my comments in an earlier interview. Last Saturday evening, I said, sent a text to each player individually to present an opportunity for open communication with me. Many members of our team chose to respond and have more in-depth conversations about issues and feelings. Marvin is right. It was a mistake to use the word every, particularly at this time, words are important and I'm sorry. Once again, I'm grateful for the opportunity I was given to speak to the team more in depth as a result of Marvin being willing to express his feelings. We will continue to communicate and work together to be part of the solution, making our world a better place for all. So you got to give him a lot of credit for that. I mean, he, what this actually reminds me of a little bit is one of the most formative things for me growing up was that my dad, uh, was willing to be held accountable by his own children. I, I will never forget when in high school, uh, I, he, he, he basically ripped into me for something and said, you know, you, you, you know, you can't do that. No, we don't do. And I looked at him and I said, well, you do it. And that could have been a really provocative situation. And he just immediately looked at me and said, you know what? You're right. And I'm wrong. I need to change. Thank you for, for bringing that up. You're right. And that is one of the most formative moments of my life. And, and really, it's been a pattern in my dad's life ever since I've known him, which is if you can dem- if you call him on something or if you if you're in a discussion with him and you can show him evidence that disagrees, that, that, that shows that he's mistaken on something, he switches sides and just, OK, well, I, I was wrong. And he taught me at a very early age that <laughs> there's nothing wrong with saying I'm wrong. I was wrong. Okay. Follow the evidence where it leads. Be willing to apologize when you are wrong. Own up to it. And ultimately, people will respect you more for it. And the thing is, when you do that, you're wrong a lot less. Because that means you're actually following evidence. You're actually listening to uh, to other people. You're actually able to be swayed so that you're not sticking with some stupid opinion that you have just because you don't want to be, you don't want to feel wrong. And that, that's one of the most valuable lessons I ever got from my dad. And it's one of the reasons why I, you know, it's one of the things that put my respect for my dad off the charts is my dad never pretended that he had all the answers and was willing to be held accountable when there was something that he did wrong. When you called him out, he said, you know what? You're right. And what that meant is that when he called me out, I knew he held himself accountable and I needed to hold my, myself to the same kind of standard. That meant that when he said something, it was serious. Because the, the hypocrisy thing, I couldn't lob that back at him. Well, I tell you what, that's something that, if you're Mike Norvell, you hope comes across to your team. Which is, you know what, guys? I made a mistake. And, and ultimately, when you called me out on my mistake, I didn't kick and scream. I didn't pretend I didn't try to defend myself. I said, you know what? I owned up to it. Took my, uh, took my medicine. We got through it together and, 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 you know, there's accountability and this is a demonstration of accountability from the top. So that's something that is a really, really positive thing to come out of this. Now on the flip side, I do think that this is the sort of thing that ultimately in recruiting is going to be brought up by opposing staffs like, well, you know, if you can't, you can't trust him to say that, tell the truth about that. Do you want to send your son to somebody who hmm, not going to really tell the truth about something? I mean, can you trust what he's telling you on the, on the recruiting trail? There's going to be some of that. Now, again, the rebuttal to that is going to be, look, I held myself accountable. I owned up to my mistake. This is a simple mistake. And I'm going to be above board with your, with your son. I'm going to be above board with everything I tell you. And I'm going to own up to anything that I do wrong. I'm going to, I'm going to hold myself to the same standard that I'm going to hold your son to. And I'm going to hold your son to the standard that I hold myself to. So ultimately, I think that's, that, that's a good outcome. I do think that it's important that they maintain that, that, you know, coming into camp, coming into the season, provided the season actually goes as, as hoped, uh, you know, that actually starts 
that they, they start well and that they have some early momentum because this is the sort of thing that, again, it does damage trust a little bit. Now, it rebuilds trust when you handle it the way that he did. But it's still something that you, you want to monitor, that you want to keep tabs on. And I did have some listeners that, uh, that pointed out to me that, and, and it, it's true, that neither the text that he sent out nor the admission of, uh, of having made a mistake and, and ultimately owning up to uh, Marvin Wilson, neither of those brings up the question of race. Both of them are more general. You know, you see that making the world a better place for all, uh, for all that have been victim, going to the text that he sent out, for all, for all those who've been victims of hateful actions, discrimination, prejudice, and disrespect, we lift them up in our thoughts and seek justice. What you don't have is something like what Coach Fuller sent out, which is basically a straight up discussion of anti-black racism and what he's, how difficult that is to confront and how important that is to to deal with and and basically how he as a father is doing the best that he can to try to eliminate any of that with his children and explain it to his children there's there isn't any of that and that's something that a few people pointed out to say you know Norvell would have been better off in these statements to basically take more of a uh to address the race question a little bit more directly than to keep things a little bit more general but I understand why he would keep it general. I mean, that's this is such a fine line to walk for for head coaches who really ultimately these are the sorts of things where that's not what they're paid to do. And at the same point, it is what they need to do. It's what they're it, when you've got 85, 90 percent of black players on your team and these guys are looking up to you as as a leader and a father figure in many cases. It's important for you to, to be able to handle this and handle, you know, a, help shepherd the whole the whole group through this, so he's in he's in a tough spot. And there's no doubt about it. And again, there, there, there's there's really no getting this perfect, unfortunately, because of the situation where our society is far from perfect. Our uh, institutions and our structures are certainly not the way that that any of us would like them, or at least I hope that none of my listeners uh, are fully satisfied with the way that our uh, social structures work uh, these days, but, and, and have from the inception of, from the time that basically even before the United States existed as the United States, you know, there's been, there's been problems and we're still working through uh, a long legacy of that. So there's no doubt about this, that this is a very tough thing for coaches to deal with, for everybody to deal with. And it's something that we have to get through as a society and, 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 uh, as individuals and as parts of a society that uh, that is broken in so many ways, uh, and like I said, there's there's not really a good way to get through this. But I I have to commend Norvell for the recovery that that he made in in handling this, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, some of these players are able to do in terms of their move into some advocacy and uh, and and community service and some of the things that they're they're hoping to do and to have an impact. And I think that's an important lesson as, as these uh, young men do have more clout than most men their age. That's for sure. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a break here. And before we move into the next segment, I want to introduce you to a new sponsor for the show. And that is Shenandoah Newsma from Keller Williams Realty in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. As I've been filling orders for the stickers that are for sale at the Unconquered Podcast website, and if you haven't seen those stickers, you need to go take a look at them. There's some really, really good stuff. I'm about to have some T-shirts printed and some other things, uh, some, some more, more merchandise coming soon. But as I've been filling orders for some of that stuff, I've been surprised by how many listeners this podcast has in North Carolina. And if you or somebody you know is looking for a realtor in the research triangle, Shannon is the best in the business. There are lots of realtors out there, but not many of them have a PhD. Shannon did her PhD at UNC, and she knows how to put that research training to work. My wife and I worked with her when we were looking for a house several years ago, and she sets the standard for having every bit of information help, uh, possible to help her clients. She is relentless. Shannon is an ace negotiator. She understands both the economics and the psychology of the buying and selling process. That's all the sorts of stuff that... Uh, she learned in the, in the process of doing her PhD and you'll want her on your side, whether you're buying or selling her, selling your house. 
If you or anybody else needs a, needs a house in the Research Triangle, talk to Shannon. Her information is in the show notes. Tell her you heard about her from the Unconquered podcast. Okay, so let's go ahead and move into a couple other things. Uh, other thing that we need to discuss right away is the three transfers that Florida State has announced, and that is Mako Dotson, the FAU transfer. Uh, he projects as a slot corner. He led the nation in interceptions last year, and it was not just a situation where he got lucky or you know just a bunch of balls bounced to him. This is a guy who has really, really good ball skills. I'm not sure what you know that he's a true FSU level athlete as a as an outside type corner. But uh, but I think as an inside corner, potentially, and, you know, he might be good enough as an outside corner. His technique is, is, is pretty good uh, and certainly brings a lot to the table as a uh, as as a veteran defensive back, somebody who's going to compete really hard for one of those corner positions. And I think make Florida State a lot better. He's also going to be a, a really good special teams player. Big addition for Florida State there. Then also Jerry and Jones. This is this is a big time athlete, really good athlete. Had a, also had a rep to as a leader to be at Mississippi State. Guy who ultimately decided that he that Mike, the Mike Leach way wasn't for him. Decided that uh, he he would be best served at Florida State, where he already had some relationships with with some of the coaches there who had recruited him when they were at Memphis. But ultimately, he he wound up in the SEC. This is a, this is a guy who can play basically every position in the in the secondary. He really wants to play corner. But he's he's a big corner, and that's something that they actually, you know, they can they can use more bodies who can do that. Uh, he's he's going to have three years uh, three years of eligibility, and and is is a guy that as a special teamer right away, depending on whether he gets a waiver or not, right away he's going to be a a dynamic special teams player, and also somebody who's going to push to be on the field from day one. Again, it's a big time player and a guy that you want in your locker room. Uh, really, really good player and somebody that Florida State would have taken out of high school. And then the third guy is definitely a guy that Florida State wanted out of high school, and that's Fabian Fabian Lovett. This is really, I mean, he's a he is a prize, one of the best transfer uh, transfers to to be landed by any program anywhere. True blue chip, former four star defensive tackle, thirteen starts in the SEC. Talking about a guy that's 300 pounds plus and has some explosion to him. This is a guy that's going to fit the the one gap aggressive upfield scheme. He, he'll be able to play either the nose or the three techniques, so that he gives them some flexibility there. And defensive tackle, the depth there was going to be a concern after 2020. And this is a guy who is good enough that he'll be in the rotation in 2020 if he gets if he gets the waiver. If he doesn't, he'll be one of the three primary rotate uh, rotational guys in 2021 if not one of the starters this is a guy who is a really good player florida state got a lot better with the addition of these three players defensively and and also just in terms of the culture these are three guys that are gonna that are gonna compete and they're gonna compete at a florida state type intensity and that again they that's desperately needed from the outside right now uh lovett is bringing that sec west kind of dynamic body as a defensive tackle you can't you can't get too many of those guys on your roster and uh and and he he's i tell you what that he's somebody worth being excited about if you're if you're a florida state fan all right so i've also gotten a bunch of questions oh and by the way this means that florida state now coming into the 2020 season they're coming into the 2020 season with 33 new scholarship players that's that's crazy that's 25 freshmen, including eight early enrollees, and then eight transfers. That, again, those, those, uh, those early enrollees, a couple of those are transfers as well. That's a big-time turnover of your roster in one year. I mean, that's, that's a third of your roster, pretty much, including walk-ons. That's over a third. It's almost half of your roster turned over in one year. Now that means you're young, though a couple of these guys are, you know, a couple of the transfers are a little older, but that's a big time turnover of the roster and, and couldn't happen at a better time in terms of uh, culture and in terms of building up what the, what, you, what the coaching staff is hoping for there. Now, again, 25 of those guys are freshmen and that's a transitional class, so we'll see how many of those stick, but still that's a major turnover of, of roster in year one for, uh, for Norvell and the staff. So I've gotten a bunch of questions about personnel 
and these have kind of piled up since I've been doing a whole lot of episodes lately. So I'm just going to rapid fire through some of these. First one, are you hearing that Florida State is going to get a grad transfer offensive tackle or JUCO offensive tackle for fall practice? Unfortunately, I've heard no indications that Florida State's actually going to land one. And right now, I don't think they've got the roster room. So they're kind of they're kind of floating with what they got, and it looks like they they swung and missed at uh, at the offensive tackle prospects that they were that they were going for on the transfer market and the the uh, JUCO immediately ready in the fall market. So looks to me like it's a matter of development, and that's that's really going to be the thing that probably most limits Florida State coming into this season. So we'll see how they how well Atkins is able to uh, school some of those guys to uh, to make them salvageable. And how well Norvell and Dillingham are able to scheme around that weakness. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see a lot there. That's, that's something to keep your eye on. All right. So next question. How does this delay in terms of COVID-19 affect the quarterback battle? <laughs> if you were a betting man, do you think Blackman will start the first game of the season against West Virginia? Is, Ch- is Chubba Purdy good enough to start against West Virginia without being an early enrollee? Is James Blackman salvageable to be at least an average quarterback or better this year? And are you surprised that we didn't go after a grad transfer quarterback? So a lot of questions about the quarterback position, and I just sort of lumped them together there. And one of the things that up front, I think, is has changed the game is, is exactly that. This uh, how, how does this delay affect the, the quarterback battle? COVID-19, the, the not having spring practice, all of this all of these delays over the summer that has put the, the the returning quarterbacks and those who are in for spring, you know, like Rotomaker that's put those guys more on even footing with the non early enrollee. And Purdy is by far the most talented and polished of the, of the group. So now you're looking at starting pretty much closer to even coming into camp. That does put him in a position to have more more of a chance to win the job. I don't think there's any question about that. Now, as for whether James Blackman is salvageable to be at least average, I think he is. I think he can be average. I think he could be a little better than average in Norvell's system. With what Norvell's asking his quarterbacks to do, I mean, it, it's a system that su- I think suits Blackman a little bit more than what they ran last year. I think the the number one thing is that they're probably going to be a little better up front, just a little bit better up front and more there'll be there. There's going to be more diversity in the running game than they had last year overall, which should help. And I think also in terms of the, the scheme, the passing scheme that Norvell runs, the emphasis on back shoulder fades, which I've broken down on the, uh, on the Patreon site and some of the, some of the downfield stuff that they do will help him. It it plays to his strengths. And I think they do more true sort of possession type passing at times than what, what Bryles brought to the table with Bryles. Basically everything was going to be play action and everything was going to be thrown down the field. Virtually everything's down the field. You know, aside from vertical choice stuff where you got a guy running a stop basically because a guy's trying to take away the vertical. With Norvell, you've got a little bit more built in in terms of some variation in the intermediate and short passing game that I think can help a quarterback like Blackman a little bit more. And I think it, it suits him a little bit more to do some of the to to do less of the the true option stuff after the snap all the time. And uh and and you know there is still going to be some stuff that he did the last 2 years that will help him be better in Norvell's system. That is some of the you know all the RPOs that that Norvell runs, all these downfield RPOs where you're you're checking a conflict player before the snap and then oftentimes after the snap you're just checking to see whether that that conflict player bites you got a, an outside linebacker say whether he's going to come toward the ba- the box or whether he's going to you know take that take away the uh, the slant route or something like that that's stuff that that Bryles did that's stuff that also well Willie Taggart's offense really didn't do that much that was one of my criticisms of Taggart's offense but that's the sort of thing that you you see a lot of with Norvell 
And it's easy stuff for a quarterback because a lot of that's really predicated on what you see in your pre-snap. So basically that that allows the quarterback a lot of rhythm throws in, a, in the RPO game. And if Blackman's just able to clean up some fundamentals a little bit, and that's where not having spring really hurt, really hurts a lot, able to clean up a little bit of fundamentals, then you know you make those accurate throws in, the, in that RPO game, and then that can help a lot. And again, the RPO game is a little bit more developed, actually, even than what I think you saw from Bryles offense where they, they had to, they first of all had to, had to reduce it a little bit uh, due to several factors, but uh, they also didn't do as much downfield RPO stuff in the way that, that Norvell does uh, as I expected uh, going into last year. So, um, but I think, I think Blackman can, can be a salvageable guy. The thing is, I think Chubba Purdy might be good enough to actually start in game one if you know if everybody's starting from close to even he might be we'll see it'll be a competition i would still as a if if i were a betting man i would still bet on blackman starting the first game but i'm not sure i'd bet on blackman finishing finishing the season as a starter and i i I think if you're norvell and, and dillingham you're you're looking to see maybe pulling some levers at different points in the season to get some, get one of the young guys on the field. And if it's going to, if a young guy's going to be on the field, it's going to be Purdy. Rotomaker, I think is, is more limited physically. And and he's just, you know, even in the first couple of days of, of spring practice, you could see that. And, and that was my eval. If you go back to the, the podcast, uh, uh, breaking down those players. And I'm going to still have a little bit more on that on the, uh, Patreon site. But if you're looking at what they showed in high school, Purdy has Purdy's just a more developed player. Uh, Rotomaker's a guy that really, to me, you bring in to be a number two and with, with the possibility that he grows into a number one, you know, in three years, but you really, really hope that he's not playing in, in year one or two. And ideally, you know, you, you have somebody else that is a, an elite guy that plays over him. I mean, and this is the, the hard facts of, uh, of college football, but ideally you have an elite guy, you know, number one quarterback pr- recruit in the country coming in and starting over him even in year three. But he is a guy that I think has developmental potential to become somebody that actually is able to fight off one of those guys. And that's, you know, you want it, you want your developmental guys to be guys that have high ceilings. And I do, I do think he's got a, neat, a nice ceiling. But I think Purdy is a guy that has more physical tools at this stage of the game. He's got a stronger arm and he's, he's certainly very mobile. Uh, that I think it's going to be really interesting with guys starting closer to even going into fall camp, how that pecking order works and and how quickly Purdy's able to pick up what they're doing, which, I mean, again, they've got all this stuff recorded from these Zoom sessions and from all the chalk talks and everything that they've done. That's a, a huge advantage for the freshmen to be able to learn over the summer in all of that uh, and be integrated with that. That's a, that's a huge deal. And yeah, I, I think he's got an opportunity that he wouldn't have had as much of an opportunity otherwise. All right, next question. Many people think Devontae Taylor will be a big upgraded offensive tackle because he did well against Miami and had a good pro football focus grade last year at FIU. Why don't you think he could be an average offensive tackle at offensive at Florida State? Do you think Brady Scott can be a better offensive tackle than Taylor? Who this is a loaded one. Um, so Taylor did okay against Miami last year. Uh, but again, you got to remember it was Miami against FIU. They're not playing against FIU the way that they would against FSU. That's just the reality of Miami. I mean, that's, it is what it is. Uh, he did okay, but he also, if you look at some of those other games that he played last year, he really struggled at times in pass protection. And he also just physically is built much more like a guard. He's shorter, a little stubbier, doesn't have the long arms, not super tall, uh, you know, not as long limbed. But he's a little bit uh, he's a little bit stubbier and more more of a power type guy that you know you get up under somebody's pads and move him and to me that that makes him and he, he does move his feet pretty well but he, he he struggled at times at the offensive tackle position against FIU's competition I'm not talking about Miami that was actually probably his best game but if you look at some of the other games he he really struggled at offensive tackle and and if I'm you know, as a scout, when I'm looking at that, I'm saying eh, he really he really fits best at guard, and that actually is where they started him in the spring, which surprised a lot of people. I tried to tell people, but that's where they started him 
Now, he did get some reps at offensive tackle as well in the spring. So they're they're slotting him around and they're they're trying to figure out which guys are going to be the best at which position. So it's still possible that he winds up at offensive tackle just because Florida State has no tackles. But that's not the best case scenario for uh for Taylor or for Florida State. Taylor would prefer to play guard. He knows that's the best that's his best path to the next level because he can't play tackle at the next level. It's not even close. He's not even close to an NFL tackle. But he, you know, if he if he starts and has a good year at offensive guard, some teams will give him a sniff at guard. Just looking at him physically and everything else, have a chance there. So as for offensive tackle, what other guys on the on the team fit better there? Well, you know, Brady Scott is a guy, but I don't think Scott's very good at offensive tackle either. I mean, he struggled last year. He got he got run through a number of times last year, really struggled to anchor at, at offensive tackle against the bull rush. And there were times where he also had some trouble against the against the speed rush. And really, if you're not good against either one, that's uh, that's a bit of a problem. <laughs> but Scott is one of the hardest workers on this team and is a guy that I think they they feel like is is a guy that can potentially uh, at least be a, be a guy that can get run through slowly at that spot. I don't think that either guy being an offensive tackle is ideal. If I, if I had to handicap this and ultimately, since this is a podcast covering Florida state, I'm, I'm sort of doing that. If I had to handicap this, my bet is that if they had their druthers, if the coaching staff had things the way that they wanted that the starting starting tackles next year would be Darius Washington and Chaz Neal. That hopefully Chaz Neal has a good enough offseason to continue to develop. Again, COVID-19 really hurts there. But he's the guy with the length. He's the guy with the potential tools to actually man that position. That's my guess, is that that's really what they want. And they started Neal at the left tackle spot in the spring. Because that's that's their hope. That's what they're hoping for. They're hoping that he grows into one of the starters. That's not a great sign in that Neil was a guy that I wasn't sure, you know, when the when the when the Taggart staff asked me to look at their uh, recruiting board when they first took the job back in uh, in twenty eighteen. Neil was a guy that I I flagged as I'm not sure I'd take him. And they evaluated him and felt like they could at least take him at the, at the offensive tackle position. And then you combine that with his relation to Evan Neal. And, and they felt like it was worth it to take him, uh, that he had enough potential with his length and athleticism to, to grow into something uh, before, before he was done. But he was a guy that I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure why Jimbo's staff took him. And I wasn't 100% on board with him being a take. At tackle, I was okay with it. But it was one of those like, ah. And he still hasn't proven that he belongs at this level. But again, the, the tools are there in terms of six, seven plus super long. And if you can just get him to move fundamentally correctly, he's, he's just smooth enough. I mean, he's not a, he's not a silky smooth guy, but he's athletic enough that with that length, he can present some problems for you. And then Darius Washington, we saw some potential from last year. So, my guess is that that's your best case scenario. If one of those guys doesn't work out at tackle, or if you have an injury, then odds are you're going to have, you're, you're going to see uh Devante Taylor or Brady Scott at, at the right tackle position. And that's not good. That wouldn't be good in, in either case. <laughs> that's not really what, what, what anybody at Florida state. And, and that's not also, like I said, that's not what Taylor wants. That wouldn't be the best case scenario. So you just hope that that one of those younger tackles, that two of those younger tackles wind up working out and wind up being able to produce uh, solidly at the at the at this level and that they stay healthy. Next question. Who are some players that you think should make a position change regardless of staff, just based on them being better at another position? It's a really good question. First one that I would see as a position change is Manny Rogers. Manny Rogers, to me, is not a defensive tackle. He is an offensive tackle. You look at his body, and he is a guy that I actually think 
physically could potentially contend at the offensive tackle spot in year one. You don't want him at the offensive tackle spot in year one, but certainly in year two, after a year of learning the craft and really developing and, and, uh, and cutting some baby fat, he could be, I mean, he could really be a heck of a tackle. And I think right now he's set on plan, plan defensive tackle. But to me, Manny Rogers, the, the true freshman is a guy that I would have at offensive tackle. Next is Jaden Lars Woodby. I still, I mean, I, I think the kid is a really good player and, and versatile. I'm not sure that I, I like him at safety as much. Now, with the way that they, that they run this system, the boundary safety is sort of in, in a lot of, in a lot of uh, defensive looks against certain personnel is sort of like a fourth linebacker. So, you know, he could be a boundary safety, but Florida State already has Hamsa Nasiruddin there, and I'm not sure you want to take Hamsa off the field for Woodby, and I don't think Hamsa or Woodby can play the field safety position. Not ideally. I think you want more of a cover guy, more of a hybrid corner safety at that spot. So to me, the guy that makes the most sense to have at the star position is Jaden Lars Woodby. Put him at star, which is a safety position, really. It's the third safety in this in this defense. Put him at the Sam linebacker spot, which is their hybrid, and then use him as a Swiss Army knife, sort of... Uh, Derwin James style, move him around in that, in that role. But I think at, you know, he's around 230 pounds, 225, 230 pounds. And I just think he fits really well at that spot. I don't like him as much as an inside backer, but use him, use him like Clemson used, uh, and his name is escaping me, but their first rounder this last year, Isaiah Simmons. Use would be the way that, that Clemson used Isaiah Simmons. He's not the athlete that Simmons was, especially coming off that injury. Simmons you know, ran sub 4-4, but he's a really good athlete and a really versatile athlete and a really smart player, which goes a long way. So use him as that hybrid backer safety, and, and I think you've got a lot. And you, when you combine that with Nasir Dean, who also is that rangy sort of hybrid type, you've got a lot, lot to do on the field. I also think Raymond Woody is a guy that I would probably have at the star position and start working his way into the back, into the linebacker spot, most likely. And Brendan Gant is another guy that I think probably fits in that mode as well. More of a, uh, more, I think more of a backer than a true true safety. Though I think Gant could be a boundary safety. As well, I mean, either one. I mean, would be or Gant could be the boundary safety in twenty twenty one. But again, I I, I kind of like those guys in that intermediate zone rather than in the in the deeper stuff. One other guy, I I still like the idea of playing Amari Gainer some at the uh, at the rush end position. You play him down at the at, at the at the Fox position at their hybrid end position on on especially on passing downs. If Gaynor could get to about 235, I think he could be a weapon there because he is so slippery and he is so natural when he's moving forward that I think pass rusher is where he's probably the best. And then that allows you to have Lars Woodby playing stud. And sorry, it's stud, not star in this in this defensive scheme. It's the same position. But that leaves Woodby, Lars Woodby playing stud and Gaynor being able to play down at, at, at a pass rush position a little bit more. I think that might be sort of your best bet, but you know, I think well, it remains to be seen sort of where some of these guys fit. They've got a lot of hybrids on this defense. You look at Nasir Dean, Woody, Lars Woodby, Gaynor, Gant, all of these guys, it's not sure where, I mean, where are you going to play them? I mean, the buck and the stud only are, there's only two of them on the field at once. And that's really five guys that can all, that can play those two positions sort of interchangeably. And so figuring out who, who should be on the field, there, there's going to be some, somebody that's probably not going to be real happy in terms of playing time as a result at the, at one of those spots this year. And then you've got some other guys. I mean, Travis J can play any position in the, in the, in the back seven or in or I guess in the back five, the stud or the uh, all the way around to the corners. Really. He's, you know, safety corner. Uh, you've got, a number of these guys, I think Carlos Becker probably is a better look at the boundary corner than he is at the free safety. 
Uh, and I think he moved there in on day two or day three of, uh, of, of fall camp. But again, there's, there's a lot of players in the secondary and it'll be interesting to see who comes out actually on top of the, of the depth chart there. there that's going to be really contentious to see who plays in the secondary. Next question. What do you think about Dennis Briggs playing the three technique now? Well, I like him there. I, that's where he should have been all along. Uh, and I think he, he, his quickness, his, his size speed combination there makes him really tough, tough to block. And he, uh, he had his way with the Florida state offensive line at the three technique, uh, when they had their one pad practice. So, you know, that doesn't necessarily say much, but he's a guy that I I think that's where, that's where his future is. And that's, that's a, that's a good move for him and for the defense. As for what I think about Becker playing corner and Renardo Green moving to safety, we'll see. Again, I think a lot of that right now is guys being moved around just to see where they're they're sort of playing musical chairs to see where guys fit best. Uh, I think either one can play either spot. And I think what they're trying to do right now is to figure out who can cover in that free safety position, in that field safety position, who can cover well enough on those verticals to to really be the guy there. And that takes a guy that can move in space a little bit and green might be a good option there, but we'll see. Uh, next question. Do you like Akeem dent better at corner than safety? Yes. <laughs> a lot. Um, I think he, his explosiveness and just natural ability looks better at corner than safety. Uh, so, you know, we'll see again, they've got to figure out who's going to fit where, and you may not have a guy at his best position in the secondary because him move into his best position means that somebody who's not as good at the other position winds up playing. So you've got to kind of figure out where guys are best for the, for the defense overall. Next question. What's the possibility of, J- of Jalen Goss playing some half back or some H back tight end? Obviously he hasn't been able to gain enough weight to play offensive line. So why not add an extra blocker 10 to 15 plays a game that puts six true offensive line on the uh, offensive lineman on the field for 10 to 15 plays. Seems like it would help. Well, they did that last year. And I know this off, this offensive staff has gone back and watched that. So I wouldn't be surprised if they did some of the same thing. I mean, they use the tight end and H back in a lot of creative ways. And Norvell does a lot of unbalanced and, uh, and, you know, extra lineman type stuff anyway. So it's the sort of thing that I would see them. I, I can see them doing. I would be a little surprised if they actually didn't do some of that this year. All right. Final questions have to do with the coronavirus and sort of where things are going to go. Uh, and so I'm going to go ahead and take a quick break and thank my third and fourth sponsors before I, before I do, uh, get into the, this segment segment next sponsor is Lewis Marquez of Keller Williams. Those of you who've listened to this show for a long time know that Lewis is the best in the business in Jacksonville, Florida. Look, every realtor has their strengths. Lewis's strengths are many, but it starts with, if you're listing your house, you're not going to get anybody that's going to make the house look better than Lewis. He's a trained photographer and videographer. If, if somebody's looking for a place to live and they're starting online, which 90% of home buyers do, you're going to want, you're going to want your house listed by Lewis so that it looks it, the best it can look. It's going to pop. People are going to want, you're going to get more showings and you're going to get more bids as a result of listing with Lewis. And if you're looking for a home, nobody's going to out, outwork Lewis. Give him a call, drop him an email, let him know you heard about him from this podcast. Anybody who, who needs a home in the greater Jacksonville area, anybody who's selling their home in the greater Jacksonville area, best in the business down there. All right. So final questions, like I said, are about the, uh, the, the season coming in. First question is John Swafford, the ACC commissioner, is considering four scenarios for 2020, uh, 2021. Uh, the, uh, the ones that, that, that were released are football as usual, truncated football, basketball, but not football, and then no sports for the academic year. Do you, in light of this, think that the FSU football season will still be, do you still think that the FSU football season will be played in the spring if you are still betting? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, I think a lot of things are really up in the air right now. I would right now, I I've, I'm, I would say, no, I I've, I've changed my, my mind on that. I, I think the last few weeks, particularly with the, uh, protests and everything else, and we're going to see what that's going to do in terms of, uh, spreading the virus. But as we've seen the numbers, 
of how the virus actually affects people by age. And as testing gets more widespread, I think you're going to see more and more of a push. And I think partly for political reasons as well, uh, you're going to see more and more of a push to get things closer to normal. So you're, I, I think there's a, a decent chance that we see football start close to on time in the fall. If there isn't another sort of ramp up and outbreak in terms of, uh, of the curve rapidly going up. Uh, I know that the Iowa state athletic director has talked about what they're doing. where basically season ticket holders only and, uh, and using social distancing, uh, in the, within the stadium, which I'm not even sure how that would work with cheering and everything. I mean, I guess people wear masks and all of that, but I, I'm, I'm not sure how that would work, but, uh, you're, you're, you're getting the same thing. I've, I've seen the same thing from several other, uh, other places where you're getting some discussions of, okay, well, maybe we won't do football with, you know, 80,000 people in the stands. Maybe we'll do football with 36,000 people and spaced by, you know, eight or nine foot intervals, uh, within the stands, you know, between groups that didn't come together and all of this and, you know, asking people to wear protective gear and, you know, basically telling people who are, at risk to stay home or, you know, people who are caretakers for people who are at risk are going to be exposed to people who are at risk to stay home and otherwise trying to do things, uh, that way and, you know, testing players regularly and, uh, and, and dealing with that, that way, uh, that seems to be the direction that a lot of these programs are there. That's the, that's the hope. I will say that, uh, I, I saw that, uh, Alabama has already had five players, uh, when they reported tested positive for COVID-19. So what that, what that means, I don't think that we have a real good sense yet. Thing is with, with these players, the odds are, odds are with most of these 18 to 22 year olds, most of them are not going to be deathly ill if they can contract the virus. Most of them are going to, you know, it's going to be fairly mild. Now, we don't know the downstream effects of that in terms of potential damage to lungs and other things, but given that, I think there's going to be more and more of a push as we get closer for people to want to play. But that, I don't think, is a guarantee. And so I, I reserve the right to change my mind as more evidence presents itself and as more uh, as we get closer, I think things will get a little clearer. But yeah, I mean... The other thing is it's going to be expensive. I mean, the, the NCAA chief medical officer said it costs between $125 for corona, each coronavirus test, and they're going to be testing players basically weekly. That's expensive real quick. I mean, that's $800. You know, maybe they get a bulk rate or something. $800 for your team if you're just testing weekly, and they're probably going to test more than that in some cases per week. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. So... And that's just for the 80 guys. I mean, it's really more than that. So, you know, what, $1,200 as you, as you work through the team. And then when a player or coach gets the virus, you know, that, that, that changes things. I mean, what happens if you're Clemson and you're going through your normal testing and all of a sudden Trevor Lawrence tests positive for COVID-19 the week of say the Florida state game or the week of the ACC championship that changes your game plan, doesn't it? Maybe do you try to play a player who has it? I mean, does that get, is this an honor system situation with, with the different teams? And then when somebody finds out that you played a player who had, who actively had COVID-19, I mean, is that something that there's a lot of issues that still need to be gotten through here in order for things to proceed. And quite frankly, the, FSU admin, the UNC admin, the, the NC State admin, all all the all the places that I have some connection. There's still a lot of nerves about all this. I mean, at NC State, a large percentage of our, our of our classes in the fall are going to be on uh, online. A number of others are going to be hybrid, and the face to face ones, like my you know one of my uh, classes for this next year, we're looking at doing basically half there one day, half there the next day so that basically you can use one third or one, one quarter of the, of the uh, room space so that you can socially distance while you're in a face-to-face context. 
Florida State has committed to using only 25% of academic space on campus, and they're going limited face-to-face. So if you're doing that, I mean, are you then going to have sports being played? I mean, it's a tricky, tricky thing. So (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen. I do know that them opening campuses back up for for players and coaches on a limited basis in, in June is a step in the direction of having having things play. But I don't think it's a guarantee by any stretch. Uh, I, interesting thing is that if they do it, you're looking at potentially, they're, they're talking about it doing a six-week preseason, preseason camp where the first two weeks are basically no pads and no contact or anything, but it's just basically allowing them to have some install periods to try to make up a little bit for what they did in spring. Which, I mean, that helps your young guys and everything, but it also does make camp that much longer. I mean, by the end of camp, you're tired. And it is a grind. Even if you're not hitting in those first couple of weeks, it's just, it's it's a mental load. And that just extends the season. And so that's something else that they need to consider. Uh, and it also doesn't make up for not having spring because you're just not able to work technique. You're not able to get the the, the summer to continue to ingrain the, the techniques and the technical stuff that you worked on over the course of the spring. A lot of that stuff just never got corrected, so it's just a lot harder. But, um, but yeah, I think I think there's a lot of things that still need to be figured out. I'm still a little skeptical. I, I think they're they're trying. They're they're operating optimistically in the hopes that they can start on time and that they can do all this. I'm not sure they'll be able to, but I'm also a little bit of an optimist. We'll see. Final question: Is Coach Norvell as intense at practice as Jimbo is? Is he a yeller unlike Willie? Is he as intense as Jimbo? Yes. Is he as demeaning as Jimbo in the in the way that the way that they yell? No. Um, but he will get up on everybody, and he is a bundle of energy everywhere. So, uh, so yeah, he's all over the place, and is definitely going to get in guys' faces, and uh, is a is super intense from the start. So yeah, no doubt, and. No, no problems. Yelling is definitely not as quiet about that sort of thing as Willie. Although Willie, you know, he he got in people's faces a few times. People didn't. People don't, may not know about that, but he did a few times. But uh, but there's just a lot more energy from Norvell, and just in general, the the staff uh, is a more energetic, overall intense staff than 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 the last one from top to bottom. So, yeah, go, I, I'm comfortable comfortable saying that. All right. Well, that's going to do it. Uh, I'm going to thank my fourth sponsor. That's Garage Makeovers, top rated garage remodeling company in South Florida. If you're doing a lot of stuff in your garage right now because you're socially distanced, maybe you want to have them come out, you know, have a local business. If you're in South Florida, if you're in Palm Beach or Broward County, have them come out, fix up your your garage so that, you know, when you're doing whatever you do in your garage during these social distancing times, your garage is in the best shape possible. They'll do overhead storage, polyaspartic flooring, cabinets, shelving, slot wall, accessories. If you need a garage gym put in, they'll they'll make sure they get the right equipment and put that in. Anything in your garage, garage, garage makeovers is a place to go if you're in Palm Beach or Broward County. Also, I want to thank my loyal sponsors, loyal uh, supporters over at Patreon, above the bleach numbers level. That's Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, Brian Leninger, Travis Smith, Vince Calandra, and Burt Bertoldi. We'll be back soon, hopefully. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening.